0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast and it's just you and me but we've got some uh, some virtual guests and some adventures to tell you all about.
1: Yes, we've been out on the road again. We attended a conference uh, very recently at Cardiff High School in South Wales for the first ever research ed Cymru Conference. Yeah, a conference with a
0: difference, because we've been to one or two conferences ourselves, but they've always tended to just be aimed at education academics. There's never been a teacher in sight, but for the first time uh, we went to that Rare Beast, a conference that is entirely created with teachers in mind.
1: Yeah, it was excellent. There was a real buzz about the place. Um, there were also some students on our current programme who were present, um, some Teach First students, uh, shout out to them. So it was a really nice mix um, of practitioners from all all across different aspects of the uh, of the profession. And we were all there together to listen to some keynote speakers. There were some parallel papers. There was a lot to choose from, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, there were absolutely loads of sessions and some of them with some very big names, people who've written books that we've read or even reviewed on the podcast. It was a, a difficult decision, I think, wasn't it, working out what to go to. But it was, it was certainly exciting. The room was absolutely full of teachers who were giving up their Saturday to be there.
1: So we've got a clip for you um, just to kick this off, to give you a little bit more of an insight into the work of Research Ed and to give you an insight into why this Research Ed Cymru event was so special and important.
0: Yeah, we've got Gareth Rain, who is one of the organisers. He's a friend of the podcast. You may have heard him on the Curriculum Design Panel mega episode a few weeks ago. Um, so we interviewed him down the line from his school in Penarth and asked him what it was all about so gareth you're a big mover and shaker in the world of uh, research ed so i guess you're probably the person to ask what is it how did it come to be what's research ed for
2: i'm a minnow tom i'm I'm, I'm nobody in the world of research ed so research ed started about seven years ago now i believe where tom bennett uh, no doubt in conversation with lots of people had this idea of getting teachers together on a Saturday so that they could talk about the idea of how research could be used in their classrooms. And so he got together with Helene O'Shea, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and they put a tweet out and said, if we were to run such an event, uh, maybe for about £10, I think, do you think that people would turn up? And within... An hour, I think they had enough people that had responded to say, yes, I definitely would, would come. And it's a bit like the, um, the Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner, if you build it, they will come. That's exactly what's happened. And, and then, you know, the rest is history. So they've had now events in countries in every continent apart from Antarctica. And they are always very well attended. Uh, and they have the National Conference in London each year, which is always a huge event now in the, in the calendar.
0: Fantastic. I mean, is this something for student teachers, NQTs, early career teachers, uh, as well as uh, more experienced members of the profession? I mean, you often hear from them, you know, I'm just worrying about the nuts and bolts. So I just want to get them quiet and sitting down. But actually, is there something in it for people who are new to the profession?
2: Everybody. So uh, student teachers, even people who are just considering going into teaching, I would say, could attend and should event, research ed events. They are... <clears throat> despite sometimes the apparent dichotomy between different ideas on Twitter, they are open to everybody. So they're heterogeneous in their makeup in terms of the speakers. They are um, a very welcoming events. Uh, and it's great to see the different age ranges. Probably, I would say, it would be more so under 35s so when you're actually at the events. But there's people all the way through to retired teachers, both speaking and being part of the days. And I think that that's absolutely fantastic.
0: And we hear a lot about that perceived gap between the world of education and the world of people working away in the classroom. Um, Trying to close that gap is explicitly a part of what we're doing over here in Wales now. You know, it's written into the design of our teacher education programmes. It's something we really need to be getting on with and doing. So what do you think the challenges are in trying to achieve that? And I I guess apart from research ed, uh, where do you see the solutions might lie?
2: Uh, So one of the major challenges is, is time. Um, and that's an interesting aspect of um, research ed, and, and why it's been so successful and how it's been successful, is the fact that people are willing to give up a Saturday. So to have people at all stages of their career who want to pay their own money to turn up on a Saturday to listen to great speakers, uh, I think is incredible. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago if this would have been a success, I probably wouldn't have had the faith that, that Tom had um, and would have said, no, Saturdays are precious. Weekends are precious for family time, for catching up, on all the different things that teachers find so difficult to do during the week. Yet this grassroots way of working seems to be flourishing. So brewed research ed network ed eh, here in Wales, and it's great to see. So I think one of the challenges, despite the fact that they've been so su- successful, is time. Um, it's really hard for head teachers to release people from the classroom, and of course, there's always a cost implication with that. I think if we can maybe strike a balance between how we're able to do that. So I'm a head teacher of St. Joseph's School here in Penarth, and we bought tickets from the school, so our teachers didn't pay. And we allowed our teachers to all um, attend the event. And now one of our inset days in the year will be given over to that. So that Saturday working will now be given back to them where we don't have to have an inset day in the school. So I think schools can be creative in terms of how they do these sorts of things. So that would be one way of trying to deal with the challenge. I think that something else that we did in St. Joseph's school has really worked for us. And that was to set a curriculum development team. So if I go right back to to soon after the publication of successful futures, we decided in St. Joseph's that we wanted to look at what we do in the school to review everything and to think about what we should change and and how we could change it. And so uh, we established a curriculum development team of five people within the school. So from, Relatively early career teachers right the way through to to Mia's head. And between us, we read lots and lots of books, lots of journals, uh, blogs, listened to podcasts, and then we fed back to each other. And then those five then went out to the teachers across the school and then chatted about ideas and, and we even provided digests for our staff. So we said you might not have the time to read all of Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths About Education, but here are the things that we think you should know from that book. And then hopefully uh, you would then use that to go and want to read the book. But if you haven't got time, these are the things that we think could, could help you and impact upon you in the classroom and our practice as a school. So those kind of digests, uh, which we shared in our professional learning sessions, were really helpful, I think, to our staff. So I think that schools could be running such uh either days or after school sessions or lunchtime clubs i know all these sorts of things are going on right now and i think it's a real golden age of the use of research in schools and the ideas of of teachers doing it for themselves as well
0: and a really nice message there that this isn't just something for senior management you know for the top brass in a school you're making it clear there that brand new members of the profession have got something they can bring to an established school environment
2: yeah absolutely and uh Something that um, hopefully is happening in universities now, and, and and I do see it happening through the students that we've had just here in St. Joseph's School, is that they're being given these messages right from the start of their career. So they're being told that you should be research informed and that you should not only try and access the, the kind of books and journals and so on that the lecturers are recommending, but also to go wider and then to try and even develop the ability to undertake inquiries. And so those people then will be able to go into schools already working in that way, and then help maybe colleagues who are later on in their careers who haven't done that in a long time, or maybe have never done that kind of thing. So they they will become valuable within schools because they will have the skills to help others.
0: And it looked like it was a really successful event, Research Ed Cymru, the first Research Ed Cymru. Does that mean there's going to be another one?
2: We hope so. Uh, absolutely. We're, we're in discussion with um, Tom Bennett and uh, Helene now. Um, we've uh, kind of got a provisional date book for next year. So we just have to try and make sure that we're able to uh, cross the T's and dot the I's. And then if we can, we'd probably be looking to announce that date sometime soon. So hopefully still within this month of March.
0: We'll keep an eye out. Gareth Rain. thank you.
1: So there you have it. Gareth Rain. If you build it, they will come.
0: They will. And they indeed did come. It was uh, a really full haul. And uh, we started off, didn't we, with um, not the man himself uh, in the flesh, but a video message from a giant of education research.
1: Yes. Mary Myatt calls him St. Dylan. She
0: does. I don't know if we (laughs) dare say that because he's going to (laughs) listen.
1: Okay, we're not breaking confidence, surely. She <laughs> shed it to the whole room. Sorry, Mary, sorry, okay. Dylan.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll keep that in and see if we're still employed in <laughs> six months' time. Yes, we had a video message from Dylan William because he was on a plane when Research Ed, but he is hes very uh, committed to the Research Ed movement, isn't he? And,
1: uh, he is, and he gave us some really great food for thought at the start of the day that actually, because we were presenting, we'll talk about this a bit later on, we were presenting at the end of the day, and I was a bit nervous at that um, to begin with because I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to be waiting the whole day. I'm not going to be able to really get into the other speakers because I'm going to be worrying about mine. But actually, I found it really helpful because everything, every new presentation kind of gave me a new spin and, or, or shed light in a different way on what we were going to do in the afternoon. So I actually found it really helpful, starting with St. Dylan's speech.
3: Borda Dylan William, mama. Uh, for the English speakers, Dylan William here. When I was first teaching back in the 1970s, I think my attitude towards research in education was exemplified by the story of a man who's walking his dog in a field, and a hot air balloon comes into view above his head. And the man in the basket leans over and says, where am I? And the man on the ground says, you're in a balloon 30 feet above my head. The man in the basket says, you must be an educational researcher. How do you get that, says the man on the ground. Well, says the man of the basket, everything you've told me is factually accurate, but of no use to me whatsoever. And the man on the ground says, you must be an educational policymaker. maker." man in the blue says, how do you get that? Well, you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, and somehow, because I can't help you, it's my fault. What I want to talk about is how I think educational research can make a difference. Uh, when I started teaching, as I said, I wasn't very convinced by any educational research. It seemed to be detached from my own reality. And most of my learning was from colleagues, people who I res- respected, people who se- seemed to be doing well in their classrooms. But as I started working in universities, I realized that there were some mistakes that I'd made that I could have avoided if I'd been able to see some of the research evidence. And so, for example, uh, one of the systems that I used in London was called SMILE. Of the originally the secondary mathematics individualized learning experiment. And one of the interesting things about SMILE is that we used worksheets, work cards, and we didn't spend more than a lesson or two on each topic. So a student would get maybe ten different work cards on different topics in mathematics. For example, it might be one card on algebra, one card on shape and space, one card on uh, probability. And one of the interesting things was the head teacher of the school I was working at was very critical of this because he said basically you should be getting students a textbook and allowing them to get stuck into one thing for two or three weeks. But this approach of varying the practice seemed to be very successful. And of course, it's only now that the research on distributed and interleaved practice has become so strong that we can see why that it was. So, interestingly, had I known about that, I would have been much more confident about carrying on with interleaved and distributed practice. The research can help practice. But of course, research can never tell teachers what to do. And that's why educational research has, I think, struggled. There are some people who think that the purpose of educational research is to find timeless, eternal truth. This idea of what works in education. And the trouble is, as I'm fond of saying, things work in some contexts, not others, everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. The important consideration is under what circumstances does this work. At the other extreme, there are the people who say, well, we should just let teachers get on with it. Uh, academic researchers have nothing to teach teachers. They don't know anything about classrooms. They should just let teachers get on with it. And I think both of those extremes are unhelpful. The question is how we find a middle ground. And I think Aristotle's ideas of different kinds of intellectual virtue is helpful here. Uh, Episteme is what he called the timeless eternal truth, like the base angles of an isosceles triangle are equal. If you've proved that today, you do not need to check it tomorrow, it'll still be true. Another kind of intellectual virtue he acknowledged was techne, the ability to make things, the craft aspects. But he regarded above both of these a superior intellectual virtue, which he called phrenesis, which is often translated as prudence. But I prefer practical wisdom. I think that's the kind of wisdom you need as a teacher. You need to know the principles of good learning, but you also need to know how to put them into practice in particular contexts. And that's why. I've become more and more convinced, partly as a result of my own experience, partly as a result of my working with teachers, that you can't tell teachers what to do, not because it's disrespectful, but because of the nature of teacher expertise. You see, if teacher expertise were like the knowledge of how to solve a quadratic equation, I could explain to teachers how to be better. But it's not that kind of knowledge. The knowledge that expert teachers have is much more like the knowledge of how to ride a bicycle and nobody can teach somebody else to do that. They have to figure it out for themselves. And in my career, both as a teacher and as an academic and as a professional developer, I've been fortunate to work with many outstanding teachers in one project, which we call the CAMOFAP project, the King's Medway Oxfordshire Formative Assessment Project. Paul Black and I with Chris Harrison and Claire Lee wanted to put into practice our ideas about formative assessment. And so we recruited a team of 24 teachers 12 maths teachers, 12 science teachers, and we shared with them the research that we'd reviewed about formative assessment, the power of assessment for learning as opposed to assessment of learning, and we invited them to consider how they might put this into practice in their own classrooms. Now, at first, it seems like they thought we were operating a perverted model of discovery learning that we actually knew what we wanted them to do, but we weren't going to tell them because we wanted them to discover it for themselves. After about six months, they realized that we didn't have any answers. And they really did have to figure out what this meant for their own practice. And that's why that was a particularly successful project because it was researchers helping teachers identify productive directions for development of their own practice. Teachers deciding which aspects of their practice they wanted to work on And then researchers working with the teachers to research that in a way that would actually lead to publishable papers. And in fact, the paper that we wrote out of that project, on the Kemofat project, where with each of the teachers participating, I sat down with them and did a kind of quick data analysis on their data, where the teachers had chosen which class to work with, which measures of achievement to use, which classes to use as comparisons, And then we figured out a way of combining this data across the 24 teachers. And that paper is actually one of the most cited papers in the journal in which it was published, Assessment in Education in 2004. So what this means to me, I think, is that there is a tremendous potential for teachers and researchers to work together. It's not about researchers telling teachers what to do, and it's not about teachers being left to their own devices. It's finding productive collaborations between teachers and researchers. So the teachers can focus on what they're good at and researchers can focus on what they're good at. And that's why educational research has to be done with teachers, it can't be done for them. Now there's a big vogue these days for randomized controlled trials. And I think randomized control trials are important. But The important takeaway is that they'll never tell you what to do. The classic randomized control trial Is the Tennessee star study, where they reduced classrooms size from say, um, 25 to 17. So they recruited schools. And they randomly put kids into groups of 17, or 25, or 25 with a teacher plus a teaching assistant. And what they found was the kids in the smaller classrooms did better, not just when they were being taught in the smaller classrooms, but for Years afterwards, in fact, Hank Levin and his colleagues estimate that those kids in the smaller classrooms were more likely to graduate high school. QED, you might think, class size reduction works. But what you have to remember is that to participate in this experiment, schools needed at least 60 students in a grade, because you needed a class of 25 with an aide, class of 25 without an aide, and a smaller class with just the teacher. And of course, most primary schools in Tennessee did not have that many kids. It was only in the urban settings that that was true. So although the class size reduction program seemed to work in the schools that were in the experiment, it's by no means clear they they would work in other schools in Tennessee because they're mostly rural schools. It also seems that some of the middle class parents found out about the experiment. And when they saw that their kids were in one of the larger classrooms, they petitioned to have their kids move to one of the smaller classrooms. So there seems to be a drift from the larger classrooms to the smaller classrooms of high achieving middle class students. So even what has been described as the best randomized study ever done in education, the Tennessee Star Study, is full of problems. And that's why research will never tell teachers what to do. It might not apply to your context. It might not be implementable in your situation it might produce a small impact at high cost. So that's why I'm now a firm believer that teachers need to become critical consumers of educational research. And that's why I'm so excited about research I'm more excited about the possibility of teachers and researchers working together than I have been at any point in my 40-year career as a teacher, teacher, educator, and researcher. Because we're finding ways of talking from between teachers, between researchers, and teachers and researchers together to create productive dialogues that respect the different skills that different people in the system bring together. Diolch am
0: so that was the mighty Dylan William from uh, across the Atlantic. And a huge thanks to Research Ed for letting us have that audio. It was very kind of them. Uh, Not very kind of them. Yeah, so we could uh, bring the words of Dylan William to uh, a wider listenership of people who weren't able to actually come to the day.
1: Yeah, so nice to kind of chew over some of those key messages from Dylan William. And then we had another kind of great force of nature, that is the wonderful Mary Myatt, whose book actually we're reading at the moment for Book Club, aren't we?
0: Yeah, she's an expert in curriculum. She comes from an RE background, but her kind of Expertise is in curriculum, which makes it very topical for us um, over here in Wales. And she's got a very uh, particular presenting style. She's quite sort of no nonsense and quite uh, combative when it comes to some of the kind of nonsense that goes on. And she she definitely had absolutely no time for certain things. She's very entertaining, um, <laughs> entertained the audience <laughs> a lot. Um, well worth going and uh, finding a, a Mary Myatt talk if you get the opportunity. And I'm pleased to say that once she'd finished, we managed to doorstepper out in the corridor and she's very graciously agreed to give us an interview because she was actually rushing for a train at the
1: time oh she's very generous so uh here are the lovely uh words of mary myatt
0: so we've just sat through a talk from you about challenge and our student teachers know they need to challenge but they get very mixed messages about how they actually go about it and it worries them so if you could give them some advice on what that should look like in
4: practice what would you say um, we've got to genuinely pitch to the top, above all children's pay grade. Um, what I mean by that is we don't just think of who might be the highest pri- prior attaining or most able, I don't like that term, people or student in my class, it's actually got to be even higher than that, really taking them to new territory. And. I'm also thinking of the children who might be struggling. So my job when I'm talking about challenge is I'm thinking about how I'm going to scaffold and support all my children regardless of their prior attainment to actually get to the top. So we need to shift away from the language of differentiation through tasks i ideally would get shot of the word differentiation, but it's not in my control. Um, But anyway, it's much much more inclusive to say we pitch to the top and we support and scaffold primarily in the first instance through talk. And it's the power of talk that really releases deep understanding um, because that exposes thought structures.
0: And two very quick-fire questions. You talked about research that you've done and how interesting some of those outcomes have been. Our student teachers have to do research. They're privileged, I suppose. They probably don't feel like it. If you could give them a juicy topic to research, what would it be?
4: I think the emerging research around reading aloud to children, the work that's um, come out of Sussex University in the last 18 months or so ago, although it's quite a small-scale project, um, I think that has got enormous thinking to be done around, uh, because at the heart of that, really, that illustrates the point I was just making just now about um, challenge for all and being prepared to be surprised for what children are capable of, of achieving. The, the work that links to that is Dan Willingham's work around um, how our brains privilege story and I think if we did some deep thinking around that as a sector and we've got a chance if we're uh, studying to unpick that I think that can be utterly transformational in terms of practice and the second area in terms of, of research is around talk and so the work of Oracy 21, Voice 21 the work's coming out of School 21 plus all Robin Alexander's work on dialogic talk uh, how that is underpinning, again, deep, deep structures um, because of the great James Britton said in 1970, writing floats on a sea of talk. So we've got to get as a profession to a place where we're really privileging talk in classrooms.
0: And finally, you've gone on a journey from being a teacher in a classroom to having a huge amount of experience, a huge amount of schools that you've seen. What would be one thing you wish you'd known right
4: at the start? Well, one of the things I wish I'd known at the start was that a lot of what I intuitively knew was working, I've now got the evidence to say actually there's some cognitive science sitting behind it. So I used to worry, for instance, about because my background's RE, um, when we read the Bible, that the atmosphere would change. And I used to find, oh, are the children becoming religious? It's not my job to make them religious, it's my job to make them um, support them to be deep thinkers about religious, ethical and moral issues, but now I understand the research of what is happening when we read demanding stuff and are drawn into stories. So it would have been quite useful to know that um, I needn't have worried. The flip side to that is I really wish um, I'd known the research which comes out of Doug Lamov's work on Teach Like a Champion, when. the evidence uh, from his work and others is that standards rise when we don't accept half answers. And the number of times I've taken partial answers from children in my class, thinking that I was helping them, I wasn't, I was snatching their learning. So if I had my time again, I'd go, I'd do two things. One is I'd go back with more confidence to do the things that I now know are absolutely right. And the second thing I would do would be to make sure everyone spoke in full sentences using the correct grammar and subject specific
1: vocabulary
4: where appropriate. Particularly when we're preparing to write.
1: So boot differentiation into touch, teach the top scaffold, make sure there's plenty of challenge. Privilege story. And uh yeah, just just, just just just, <laughs> just be more merry.
0: For a four and a half minute interview, we got uh, an awful lot of material there. And it's really nice to hear somebody speaking up for the world of oracy as well. That's
1: it. it. That's the one that fell off the end for me. Talk talk, it's important, and it's, it's a difficult one, actually. I was just saying to you when we were listening to that clip, Tom, that Oracy, it's, it's we're seeing a resurgence now through the work of Voice 21, as Mary mentioned, in, you know, really significantly holding up Oracy and making sure that the opportunities to develop oracy are really structured and um, we don't just leave that to chance but it is a it's a tricky one because it's it's actually harder to evidence it's harder to yeah. kind of control. That's
0: <laughs> exactly what I was going to say when we brought the literacy and numeracy framework in over here in Wales I think everybody gravitated straight to the writing bit because it was something you could easily wave in front of a senior manager and yet of course, the ability to speak articulately is really important. And I'm currently reading um, Martin Robinson's Trivium 21C book, and he was one of the uh, guests. I didn't manage to doorstep him because we were just about to go and present. But he makes the point about the importance of being able to, you know, speak rhetoric. You know, being part of the original Trivium, um, mm-hmm. and it's really nice to hear that. I think there is a little bit of a move back in the direction of understanding how important that is, how important that is, because I know I fought some battles back when I was in school to to, have to, to not have to evidence things written down and, and to make the case that my pupils were doing some really high quality literacy, just using their mouths.
1: Yes. Um, and without, you know, jump, blowing my subject trumpet for the 50 millionth time <laughs> yeah, on this podcast, away, fine. you know, my subject just wouldn't exist without narrative without oracy these things are so fundamental to the art form that is drama and theater and um and actually I kind of in more recent years have have felt a a little bit like those things have fallen by the wayside and that actually you know they haven't been privileged as much as they ought to even though I knew in my gut as Mary said when she was talking about reading that they were really helping other outcomes uh, for pupils as well as their outcomes in drama you know reading aloud it's the absolute bread and butter of what we do script reading it's just yeah stop me Tom otherwise I will (laughs) I will will go off
0: (laughs) no I was just thinking there's a lovely thread isn't there running through a lot of our podcast episodes all the way back to kate north talking about creative writing as a as you know something that can sometimes get lost a little bit we know that our colleague the mighty dr judith neen is very into her kind of story-based work as mm-hmm. well and obviously we've just had the reading for pleasure podcast episode not very long ago. So it's, it's a really nice thread that's running through all that we're doing here at the moment.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and I guess the research rigour that's underpinning it all is is bringing more structure to it, is bringing clearer strategies to support teachers, to develop oracy, to introduce reading aloud um, in a much more kind of structured way, which is great.
0: One more interview. One more. Yes, I managed to doorstep uh, David Didow, who is uh, another really big name if you're uh, someone who dabbles in Edu Twitter quite a lot. He's on there quite a lot, fairly active. Um, he was very, very generous in giving his time straight after a presentation. It was actually the lunch break as well. So thank you, David, for uh, taking the time. Um, I doorstepped him with a number of the same questions, but the the first thing I wanted to ask him about, and you might remember this, he he had a a thing up on the screen as part of his presentation that basically pointed out that school. It is kind of great if you're already privileged, if you're already kind of set up with parental support and things like that. But as he put it, you know, it's set up to privilege the privileged and we have to be really careful that it doesn't disadvantage people who are already disadvantaged and that was the thing that grabbed me from his talk which was about the the new curriculum in general so that was the question that I hit him with straight on uh, straight away in the interview. Let's have a listen to David. Loads of our student teachers when they interview uh, asked why they want to become a teacher they often talk about uh, wanting to help the pupils who are least advantaged and they might have been quite shocked to see your slide which says school systems privilege the privileged and they disadvantage the disadvantage. As novice teachers, maybe with fresh eyes or, or if they want to do something about that, what,
5: what would you say to me? What would your advice be? Uh, okay, so my advice would be not to be not to be obsessed or offended by that. You know, I might be wrong, but to but to try and think critically about the extent to which it's true. And, and I think that, that a lot of the things that teachers do, they do because those are the things that work for them, those are the things that they've seen working, those are the things they've heard are effective. And there's a sort of, there's a sort of folklore, a sort of teaching's almost in, in some ways in, always in danger of being a folk discipline where there's no real substance or science guiding and providing any kind of direction. And so if you do what you've always done, you can be relatively sure that the children that are well served by the system, that, that have from affluent homes, whose families can afford tutors, those people are going to be fine, uh, even if you bungle it they'll find ways of coping. But for the children who are, for whom success is most at risk, they've only got you. And so the fact that you might choose to do things and put in place policies which actually erode those disadvantaged young people's chances are are things that we should really, really you know think carefully about. So one of the conversations I often have in schools is... Um, is about children with special needs. Um, So if you look at all the various special needs, children with uh, dyslexia, children with autistic spectrum disorders, uh, children with diagnosed working memory um, limitations, There are really quite well understood things that you probably ought to do to maximise the success of children in those situations. And one of my contentions, one of the things that I say is, what works best for children with special needs works best for all children, regardless of their need, no one is disadvantaged by best practice. And so, you know, if you're, if you're diagnosed with dyslexia, then it's even more important that you get high quality systematic synthetic phonics, it's carefully sequenced, done well. If you're autistic spectrum, it's even more important that you have good behaviour routines around you, so that you can, you know, you can predict what's going to happen when you walk into a particular classroom. If you've got working memory deficits, it's even more important that you have instruction chunks into bite size um, sequences before you move on. But everyone has working memory problems. Everyone suffers with, you know, from distraction and chaos. Everyone. Would get the advantage, you know be, be more likely to learn to read with good phonics instruction So you know and those are just free examples So you know that broadly speaking this sort or of, the bigger argument that I'd make is As 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 expert teachers it's very difficult f- for us to see what led to our expertise as people who are successful products of the education system. You know, when someone says, you know, why are you so good at maths? Why are you so good at English? Why are you so good at French or science or whatever? It's difficult to know. It's difficult to be able. So what we do is we sort of post-hoc rationalize and, and come up with just so stories about where our ability came from. But when we're when we're honest about this, when we sort of analyse where skill comes from, it comes from individual components of factual knowledge aggregated together through practice, which over time becomes skill. And one of the one of the processes that seems to happen is that with that is that the more you practice the less mindful you are of what you're practicing the more automatic it becomes the less you recognize that you're that you're in possession of knowledge which led to skill and the more of you think you think of yourself as just skilled and then when we kind of go into schools and say right this is the skill i'm going to teach you and we miss out the components of knowledge which build that skill we end up almost pulling up the stepladder that we've used to climb up to where we are and say to children can you get up without it and, of course, the most disadvantaged children probably can't. You know, maybe the most advantaged can find ways to get there, which you might have done yourself. Does that make sense? It does.
0: Two really quick-fire questions I'm trying to ask everybody. Our okay. student teachers have to research. They have no choice.
5: It's part of the course. Okay. If you could give them a juicy topic, what would it be? Oh, Well, it depends on their on their sort of area of interest. but So one of the things that that I've, a research question, which were I a researcher, which I I am not, that I think would be fascinating to find the answer um, to, is there's good reason to think that listening to a text being read aloud and trying to read it independently and silently at the same time is counterproductive because your own internal reading speed is unlikely to be exactly the same speed as a reader, And so you're more likely to miss things if you're a good independent reader. You're likely to block out what you're listening to. If you're a poor independent reader, you're likely to put the text down and just listen. But this is a practice that happens a lot in schools, and I think it would be really interesting to sort of evaluate the extent to which, if comprehension is the aim of reading a particular text, what the effects are of trying to follow along as a reader reads are because as I say there's good reason to think it's negative but I don't I I don't think there's no one's actually done that study
0: okay and finally you were a teacher once in a classroom Uh, now you've moved on and you must see loads of teachers and loads of practice your experience is much wider what one thing do you wish you knew back then
5: Oh uh I guess that's a a big question. I think that if I had to reduce that down to one thing, it's not to automatically assume that the people who were in authority at the schools that I worked knew what they were doing um because i I did I sort of you know if they told me to do something, I'd think, well, they must know. Uh, there must be a good reason for this. And so I kind of dampened my critical faculties and did what I was told. And then struggled. And then internalised the failure. Like, it must be me. I-, I failed. Not the advice I've given was poor. So I think my best advice for any teacher is to be professionally sceptical. And I'd say professionally sceptical because you can't just poo-poo everything. But it's to critically evaluate new ideas you know, to be open to the fact that you're wrong and that there are new ideas out there, but not take any on faith.
1: If there was any golden thread, I think, that came out of today, and it just struck me there in, in listening to Didao again, was how we work with and how we put things in place for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds. That was a really kind of reoccurring theme that came up through the day do you think
0: yeah and it's making me think about a, a thing that came out from the education endowment foundation the other day another one of our favorite sources mm. of things about um a guidance on how to spend the pupil premium which is mm. the money that, pu- that schools get for you know sort of additional money according to the number of pupils they have who are disadvantaged and the eef make the point that you shouldn't kind of do sort of special gimmicky things with that money that actually good stuff is good for everybody. Mm. Um not you know, there isn't sort of special good stuff that's that's good for disadvantaged pupils in the same way that David Dyda there is saying, you know, there's not sort of special good stuff that's good for pupils mm. with special educational needs. You know, it's it, good mm. teaching is good teaching. And I think that's a really nice kind of thing to just yeah. chew over as a teacher.
1: I think you just made a great point there actually about people premium and, and, and how it's spent actually that kind of links to what gareth rain said at the start about what he's managed to achieve you know he talked about resources time as a resource and and how he's kind of got this curriculum team together maybe that's the way to do it maybe it is buying every member of staff in the school you know buying their ticket to research Ed Cymru maybe it's how you allow the time and space for teachers to focus on pedagogy to focus on their their classroom practice which is the frontline stuff the non-gimmicky stuff that's in the realm of their control that you know that is possible to help all teachers whatever stage they're at in their career get better and you'd hope that's what They want to get better at first and foremost.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thread that ran through, going all the way back to Dylan Williams' point and also a point that was made in some of the main talks, which we don't have the audio of, is this really important thing to bear in mind, particularly if you're new, you're going out trying to make everything as good as it can possibly be, which is that you're not going to find the magic bullet necessarily. Nothing works everywhere. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to be the kind of answer. Everything keeps moving on. And so it's just a, a process of constantly kind of checking and reflecting and and keeping up to date with things and bringing new things in it's not this sort of all or nothing black and white Oh, I found it. A bit like um, Kevin Smith, Dr. Kevin, the other day yeah. saying, you know, what if a pupil just sticks their hand up and says, Miss, I think I've reached my potential. You know, what if we as a teacher <laughs> yeah. put our hand what up then? and say, do you know what, I think I've got this teaching lark now. Yeah, I can <laughs> retire. You know, it's not going to happen.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess that constant cycle of inquiry that was a theme um, from John Tomsett's work that we're going to talk about a bit more in a moment, head teacher at Huntington School in York, He has all of his teachers, everybody who he employs is contractually bound almost to engage in regular inquiry. So, you know, there is is a very clear wave in education now, which is, I think, helping to reprofessionalise teachers and to invigorate teachers. And it says, you know, you can try to gather your own evidence yes we might not be evidence-based although there's a bit of a, a bone of contention for us to chew over there in a later episode but you've got the power to to try something out to ask a really clear question about your practice to gather some data on it to do some deep reading maybe some of the sources that you've heard today and to be empowered on your own with the help of others if if, if you've got that support in school to make changes that are rooted in in what works
0: yeah definitely and hard though it may sometimes feel to have to do some of this stuff to be perfectly honest you know I qualified as a teacher in a culture you know it's only what was it 20 years ago I guess or 15 years ago Uh, I'm just trying Mm, to think now mm, Uh, mm. yeah 15 years ago in which it absolutely wasn't a culture to do that stuff and after five or six years in all honesty I was really bored (laughs) (laughs) and I'm sure somebody would say to me well why didn't you go and become a head of department why didn't you go and become a head of year why didn't you go into senior management because I didn't want to because I just Mm. wanted to be a really good teacher
1: yeah yeah and absolutely and so this is you know there's a clear message here that actually that is enough that is okay and can be satisfying and can be fulfilling and is is probably i would argue one of the most important jobs in the school.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I have to say I'm liking this podcast format because we've barely done any work and we're 45 <laughs> minutes into this episode. <laughs> so thank you to all of the people whose yes. audio we have padded this episode out with so far. I mean they were absolutely fantastic and really generous um, and very very kind.
1: Yeah, they were. But I guess, you know, we did our bit. We, we did in the very last <laughs> slot of the day. <laughs> Yeah, we did. We had the graveyard shift. Um, But I am going to give a little shout out to all the expressive arts teachers out there. You know, sometimes at these big conferences, um, I mean, it is a big conference now. We talked about this being, um, or Gareth Rain talked about this being grassroots at the start, but actually it's gained a lot of momentum now. I sometimes feel as a drama practitioner, occasionally when I go to conferences, and sometimes when I read kind of more generic books about pedagogy, that Drama very seldom gets mentioned in a lot of the examples about how to apply some kind of of these evidence-based uh, pedagogies. So I felt that we had a duty and I was really, really pleased that they'd accepted our, our paper proposal because even though we had quite a, a small, a relatively small amount of people attending our presentation, I would say somewhere in the region of maybe 20, I, I hope that for them it was good to see something for them on the on the menu?
0: Yes definitely I mean we presented our information about cross-curricular pedagogies which if anyone wants to know what we were on about it's basically episode two of this season of the podcast um, which we presented to an audience Um, and it was really nice and and people came up to us afterwards there was a there was a strong sense I think that we've made a little bit of a difference we provided some quite concrete things for people to take away so that was nice so yes thank you to Research Ed for the invitation and thank you to everyone for coming.
1: Absolutely. So that concludes our Yes. I guess you could call it a deep discussion. No, although it was, silly, <laughs> wasn't it? It was more, more like a deep listen. <laughs> a deep listen for us. Yeah. <laughs> to um, uh, to a cross section of our, our lovely colleagues who presented at Research Ed Cymru. And now we're on to our regular slots mm, and We've got to do our
0: own. We've got to make our own entertainment here for a change. I
1: know, I know. Um, and I and I before we saw John Tomset present at Research Ed Cymru, I was already aware of him. He's got a number of books out. Check those out uh, wherever you get your books. Um, but he's He's also got uh, a blog. His website is johntomsett.com, and I've just been having a little nosy around his blog uh, posts, and I found one that dates back to June the seventeenth of twenty nineteen that grabbed me, and I, I thought it'd be a nice one to share. It's very much aimed at A-level. We don't necessarily talk a lot about post-16 on this podcast. It kind of struck me the other day. So this one's a nice one that's aimed at teaching English literature to A-level students. But if you are a subject where pupils are asked to interpret a piece or something that they've been studying, then this might resonate with you as well. So the blog post is entitled, This Much I Know About Helping Students Avoid Making Nonsensical Interpretations of Poems. He says, I've been a teacher for 30 years, a head teacher for 15 years, and at the age of 54, This Much I Know About Helping Students Avoid Making Nonsensical Interpretations of Poems. One of the most frustrating misconceptions I hear from English literature students goes something like this. I can say what I like about a poem because it's my opinion. I sometimes struggle to refrain from writing in the margin of an essay. This is nonsense when a student decides upon an interpretation of a poem that wildly contorts the meaning of the words of the poem to accommodate his or her interpretation. And I'm just going to pause there and say that I often have to abstain from shouting that out loud to my own drama students occasionally um, <laughs> when they make a, a, a wildly off-piste um, <laughs> interpretation of something that they've seen, uh, something theatrical. So he goes on. One of the worst cases of nonsensical interpretive contortionism happened very early in my career when a mock A-level paper chose Siege by Gillian Clarke as the unseen poem. At one point in this particular student's response the line thrushes hunt the lawn eaves drop for stirrings in the daisy roots was a metaphor for policemen in search of clues when in fact it was simply clark describing thrushes hunting for worms in her garden on the lawn some 30 years on i remember that example as though i'd read it yesterday i recently however have invented a teaching device, which means I do not have to judge whether an interpretation of a poem is credible or not. Instead, students engage in dialogic talk, something that Mary Myatt mentioned in this very episode, and pass judgment on each other's interpretations. Whilst I just stand there and occasionally orchestrate the conversation. The device is called the field of interpretation. It works a treat. And at this stage, I ought to describe um, an image that he's put into this blog here. It's basically a circle that looks a little bit like a target, so you've got a circle, and in the center of that circle, you've got a spot. And then around that spot, inside and outside of the circle, you've got crosses, about four or five crosses. So the blog goes on. Recently, we were discussing Poppies by Jane Weir, a poem included in the AQA GCSE literature anthology. I asked the question, has the soldier been killed? One student gave an answer and backed it up with some evidence from the poem. I then asked the class where they would put the interpretation of the poem, inside or outside of the field of interpretation. A simple circle I'd drawn on the board with a spot in the middle. And so the dialogue began. If the interpretation was credibly supported by the evidence in the text, another student cited with an X the first student's interpretation within the boundary of the field of interpretation. The closer to the centre spot, the more credible the interpretation. If the interpretation was judged by another student to be unsupported by the text, the interpretation fell outside the boundary wall of the field of interpretation. All judgments of an interpretation have to be validated by close reference to the text. Often I do not have to say a thing as the students argue constructively between themselves about where where an interpretation falls in relation to the field of interpretation. This simple device is rooted in two pedagogic practices, metacognition and dual coding. The power of metacognitive talk is highlighted in the EEF's Education Endowment Foundation's guidance report on metacognition and self-regulation. And Oliver Caviglioli's recent publication on dual coding shows the efficacy of combining images and words to develop students' learning. Try out the fields of interpretation next time you're asking students to give an opinion of a text. It certainly minimises the nonsense. So that's the blog. Um, And then interestingly, there is um, a comment, a response to said blog below from another teacher who says that they have done a similar thing in their own practice, which involves uh, a more practical uh, way of exploring the field of interpretation. So this particular practitioner talks about doing this in a smaller A-level group where students stand in a circle um, with one student in the middle who gives an interpretation about a text and the students then agree to move towards or away from the student depending on whether they agree or disagree. Um, and and she makes some really interesting insights uh, on what that does. I just thought it was it was quite interesting, an interesting way of looking at interpretation and how we teach interpretation. That's rooted in kind of the the evidence, the facts that we find in a piece.
0: It's a difficult balance, isn't it, for those of us in subjects that have a certain amount of subjectivity involved, like music, drama, English, yeah. all of those things, because you don't want to kind of impose your own interpretations on the pupils, but then there are those. Those ones that are just barkingly bonkers, and you Mm. sometimes have to have the confidence to just say, No, Mm. (laughs) that's not right, that's just wildly off. And it's a difficult one to do, and and I think it's really important. I I certainly remember my English lessons, I was not a big fan of English um, as a kid, I must be honest, and I used to. Basically, feel that people used to make these wild statements about books we were studying with absolutely no no backup at all. And if they said something, you know, that sounded suitably right on, they would get a big pat on the back from the teacher. And it, it certainly turned me off the subject, if I'm honest.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I guess what it does it is it exposes because I, I suppose when when a, a student gives a seemingly subjective view on, let's say, a piece of music, and the teacher then does say right on unless you explore the why And then, you know, the pupils in the class potentially just going to see themselves as being without uh, and and not being kind of brought into the mystery that is the piece. When actually, it's really reassuring to know that actually the evidence is in the piece of music if we lead them to that. And I like the idea of dialogic talk, again, intersecting with Mary Myatt's points earlier on about the significance of talk, as being the kind of conduit for leading the students to an interpretation that, is more evidence-based.
0: It's a nice way of kind of bringing together those two slightly warring halves of some subjects, you know, that sort of technical baggage. And that more artistic side. And it's very, very easy to have too much of one or too much of the other when when you really need to have a balance. So, yeah, John Tomset blog sounds good. I haven't read that. I will have a little read.
1: Yeah, thank you, John Tomset.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so well being slot. I'm going to take this one and be potentially a touch controversial in the intro to it. But it's it's all got a nice end to it. So hold on for the ride here. I'm going to be really honest and say that on kind of heading in the direction of the Research Ed Conference, I was a little bit nervous um, as to what I was going to find within the walls of uh, Cardiff High School on that day. And I think the reason for that is that on Twitter, the wonderful Twitter, which is such a double-edged sword for those of us who work in education, there is a sort of large and loose group of people uh you know ordinary teachers massive celebrities you know on all sides of the debate um not on any particular side of any part of the debate but just generally this massive scrum of people on edu twitter being thoroughly obnoxious to one another let's be completely <laughs> honest about it you've
1: said uh, it now. i've said
0: it i've said it, called it out. i've called it out and funnily enough um It it seemed to get worse around half term. I don't know whether Mm. it was that somebody maybe followed me or I got connected to somebody and I could suddenly see all this stuff or whether some people have so little of a life that actually they increase their edu-Twitter activity in half term when they should really have their feet up. But anyway, there was an awful lot of thoroughly unpleasant stuff going on and and I must admit there was a little part of me that thought, oh gosh, I'm going to turn it to research ed and there's going to be sort of walking versions of (laughs) that. Twitter obnoxiousness (laughs) floating around and everybody's going to be really mean to each other and it's just really going to be not very nice. And of course, as is always the case when you actually get people together in a room, everybody was thoroughly lovely and incredibly generous and very, very polite Mm. and absolutely thoroughly lovely. And I just wonder whether it might be possible to consider that... 280 characters is probably not the best medium for having a debate as nuanced as a lot of the debates we have around education. It's absolutely brilliant for sharing interesting stuff which is why I don't leave quite frankly and delete my account because every now and again I will see a thing that I can go and read which is absolutely fantastic. So as a sort of sharing tool it's great but as a tool for having a meaningful conversation with anybody it it is pretty useless really and Mm. I just wonder... Really, it can't be doing anybody's well being any good. A lot of the stuff that's that goes on uh, in the Twitter world, so perhaps we should, as our well-being tip, just suggest that either we just all be a lot more polite, um, think about what we can use Twitter for or what we can't use Twitter for, or maybe just go meet some people in person and, and discover that they're actually really nice.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and I, I as you say, there's a lot of good that comes out of Twitter. The particularly the edu Twitter community, you know, is a, is a very generous place for sharing good practice. But you're right, it's not the place for a well, I believe it's not the place for a public debate or, or a, a public slamming um, or no, shaming. No, no. It uh,
0: encourages a certain kind of tone, which is aimed at getting kind of validation through likes and retweets and things like that, doesn't it? And mm. and also obviously encourages brevity, which I'm all for brevity usually. But when yeah, the things <laughs> like this, maybe not that much brevity, maybe not that mixture of brevity and kind of glib sort of smart aleck put downs, which which it tends to to kind of sink down to. So there we go. That's my wellbeing tip. Let's just all be nicer on Twitter.
1: Yeah, be nicer on Twitter. Go and have a pint and talk about it rather than, uh, you know, (laughs) brandishing your Twitter sword. Okay, um, so something to try, we've decided, is...
0: (sighs) To put your Twitter down. Yeah,
1: put put your Twitter down. Put down that phone or whatever device you're tweeting, about to tweet out on, and maybe pick it back up and think about looking for a conference to go and attend we realised I think at the end of that day that and I think it's important that Gareth Rain mentioned you know you were giving up our Saturdays for this giving giving up time with our loved ones you know really important things on a Saturday but actually I came out of Research I Cymru feeling very well feeling very much like I had uh, new ideas a fresh perspective that I had networked and met some lovely people that my brain had been nourished in a way that I don't get on a on a regular basis when I get into the kind of the doldrums of of the day job so we suggest that you're something to try which may also be a well-being tip as well is to go and find a conference because it can be really easy particularly when there isn't a culture of attending cpd stuff in school or if you're kind of strapped for cash as a school you can go for you can go for years sometimes without having attended any
0: and i think for for our primary audience of student teachers and early career teachers you can get a slightly skewed impression sometimes because obviously on the pgc you get dragged into uni once a week or once a fortnight and stuffed full of ideas and and that sort of thing plus early on in your career there tends to be an expectation that you'll go on events like that and there was there was even i remember there was quite generous funding when i was new and then it dries up and then you just sort of get out of the habit and you think shall i go and you think oh cover oh, I'll come back my classroom will be a bombsite. and I I can be honest I think I went 5 years without going on a course once and goodness and then I went on one and it was absolutely wonderful and of course it always happens you go you think why don't i do this and then you don't do it again so something to try just go and find an event a free one a cheap one a, you know an expensive one if your school will run to it but just you're going to have to make the first move because nobody's going to send you there.
1: It's very true. And actually something that Sally Bethel said to me um, on the day of Research at Camry, because we were very fortunate at Cardiff Met in that um, we had some, some funded places. We were very lucky to have that opportunity. But Sally said to me that she never, ever turned down a free opportunity for CPD, um, no matter what. So, you know, bear that in mind. If there are free events out there, get yourself there you've got nothing to lose
0: yeah and look out look out because gareth rain says there is another research ed Cymru on the way okay so that's us done a very strange episode there very little of us at the start and quite a lot of us at the end uh, it's also run over an hour so i hope you've felt uh, thoroughly nourished by all of that a huge thanks to all of our virtual guests and, and thanks
1: to you for sticking a will- microphone in their faces. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just like doing things like that. Uh, took my mind off having to present later on in the afternoon. But uh, yes, everyone was very lovely about it. We need great.
1: to be careful, everybody. We might lose Tom to the world of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in a room and, and lock, lock it up, throw away the key. Oh, goodness <laughs> me.
0: Right, we will be back next time. And uh, in the meantime, have a lovely time and goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Do you want to read? Yeah. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. This episode also featured, in order of appearance, Gareth Rain, Professor Dylan William, Mary Myatt and David Didow. Our grateful thanks to Research Ed Cymru for their invitation to participate, for the warm welcome on the day and for their assistance in providing the material for this episode. You can find them on Twitter at Cymru underscore Ed and don't forget to be polite. We're off to book ourselves onto the next Research Ed (laughs) Cymru. Why don't you do the same? And until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.